The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the literary biographer and historian Paula Byrne, whose new book is called Hardy Women, Mothers, Sisters, Wives, Muses. Well, it's either Hardy Women or Hardy Women. It's the women in Thomas Hardy's life, and the implied pun in the title suggests that they may have had to be quite hardy to put up with him. <laughs> Paula, can you tell me how you, how you came at this subject, first of all? Well, um, yeah, I actually paid a, vi- a pilgrimage, I guess, to Max Gate probably about four years ago. So I'd, I'd seen the cottage before, but I hadn't actually been inside Max Gate. And I happened to be uh, in Dorset visiting friends and I thought I'm going to go. And I went to visit the house and it was visiting the attic rooms where Thomas Hardy's first wife had retired to for 15 years, really really surprised me when I went up into those rooms and I saw this what she called her boudoir and just being in that attic room I just thought oh my god this is such a story and 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 I don't feel I know enough about the women in Hardy's life so that was the that was the starting point and then I just thought "Mm, that would be I'd love to because I've always loved Hardy but I I didn't know so much about the women in his life so that was the yeah that was the starting point. I mean it's it starts as you describe in your introduction with a sort of substantial hurdle to get over, which is this kind of extraordinary, obsessive, privacy, hardy exercise that, they, that, you know, he didn't want a biography. He's, as you put it, self-ghosted a <laughs> memoir. Can you tell me a bit about what the difficulties that presented and also what you think that instinct in Hardy was? Why, why was he so, if you like, shy of or frightened of being written about? Yeah, he was obsessed with privacy and and he knew that people would be writing about his life. I mean, I think anybody who burns as many papers as he burnt and made sure friends burnt a lot of correspondence is somebody who doesn't want the full truth to be told. And he got very panicky when during his lifetime towards, you know, he lived a ripe old age, but towards the end of his life, he read a biography and was fuming, absolutely furious, and thought this person had got it all wrong. And that's when he started panic. I guess a lot of writers, they do that, they get towards the end and they're like, hmm, posterity, how am I going to be written about? And he was a man who had many secrets. So he was absolutely determined really to forestall other people from doing it. It's a great technique, really, isn't it, to say, well, I'll do it and then nobody else can do it. And then he he hit upon this bizarre idea of ghosting his own autobiography and pretending that his uh, his second wife was the biographer. How truthful was that ghosted biography? What were the gaps in it? I mean, I think it's like any memoir or to stroke autobiography. You have to be careful. Um, people, it's not only that you whitewash parts of your life, Sometimes you just don't remember. And I think with Hardy, because he he was an inveterate keeper of diaries, he which he then he destroyed, but he kept diaries. So a lot of the dates do tally, a lot of the information tallies. 
but there's lots of things that just you know as i say were whitewashed or they were glossed over or or just expurgated like there were women in his life that he just did not want posterity to know that he had been involved with so it was some of those women's stories i that fascinated me and i was sort of i got very fascinated in like female law as l o r e not the other kind of law and just the way that women tell stories in a family setting and then often are not believed and it seemed like there was a sort of golden thread in some ways going through hardy that people had come up with stories that he discounted or he didn't want to be put out there. So it felt like there were a lot of holes in that narrative, even though it's the best biography of Hardy we're ever going to have because it's his words. And there are you know, excerpts of his diary with dates that are fascinating. But like, you know, he, like any, I guess, um, biography, he, he wanted to curate, I guess, that trendy, horrid word. He wanted to create a, a, an image of what his life was like and his childhood was like. And and that, as I say, was very carefully curated. So it can't be taken at face value. Let's start with, we'll get on to some of these these women because you've got some real scoops, actually, about Hardy's, the young Hardy's love life in this book. But the one woman who absolutely kind of dominates his life and lives through the vast majority of that long life is Mother Jemima. Can you tell me a bit about her and what impact she had on his development as a man as a writer? Yeah, so Jemima, she was she was the most influential um, woman in his life. Um, he was the eldest son. He almost died at birth. They had an incredibly close relationship. And she was very formative. She directed his reading. She was a great reader herself. And she really wanted her children to be better than you know ordinary rural peasant village children so she was extremely instrumental in encouraging all of the children um to read and that was her great legacy buying them books and caring about their education it's it's really hard to overestimate her influence on him he really really adored her and and obviously this comes out in a couple of the novels that relationship that he said they could finish each other's sentences that it was like an arm she was an extra arm on his body that that's how they they knew each other so well and she was she was formidable she was she was quite scary she she was um she could be very caustic she was deeply 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 intelligent and shrewd and she was this sort of fond of superstitions and so she was such she was a real muse and inspiration tiny bit scary i found that she's quite she's quite scary um but, but hugely influential and didn't she also have this i mean because she came herself from a much more working class background you know her own experience had been shaped by the sort of domestic violence that you know hardy himself was to go on to inscribe in this sort of bucolic countryside that you know the Arcadian tradition Hardy kind of goes actually it's violent it's drunken it's vicious you know that all came from her didn't it or from her background oh absolutely and and I that did shock me a bit when I was writing the book that the the way that domestic violence just punctuated his young life and her her life particularly because her father was so aggressive and so violent, but also just how many of those working class women you would get, you know, the well, he says this in Jude the Obscure, he'll give it to thee on a Saturday night, you know, that the men would go out and get drunk and then come back and beat their wives. And a lot of the, those stories and that violence were, were told to him via 
Jemima, who never really wanted to be married and she didn't want any of her children to be married. She'd just seen too much. And Hardy talks about how she couldn't even bear really to talk about her childhood because it was so damaged. She was so damaged by her father's violence. But it it was really an eye-opener, really, just thinking about how many women were scarred by domestic violence. And you're right that, you know, people think, oh, the Hardy and the bucolic rural life, but there is this underbelly, there's this seam of aggression, drunkenness, violence, of which he was very, very aware. And he was a sensitive child. I think sensitive children are super, super, super aware when those things happen. And a, a, a couple of his aunties also had husbands that beat them and so he was it was it, it was part of his life I guess but it was, it was definitely yes it came from from his mother I mean I'm trying to kind of before we go to specifics I would kind of try and get a sense from you of how you view what feels to me like one of the sort of almost tensions that run runs through the whole of Hardy as a writer and as a man that he is on the one hand extraordinarily forward thinking in terms of you know how he sees female agency about you know women having the sort of right to behave in the way that more modern women do that you know he, he he's very progressive he inhabits the lives of women much more thoroughly maybe than any male writer had to to that date and yet he treated some women very badly indeed, and behaved in, in a way that was didn't seem to extend a great deal of empathy. How do you, how do you kind of circle around that? I know that is the great paradox, and I, that's I do love the quote from his first wife when she says he understands only the women he invents, the others not at all. And so there's that sense that he didn't really understand real women, live sort of flesh and blood women, but he was able to imaginatively enter into the inner lives of working class women in a way that made them flesh and blood. So it's a definitely like a, that, that is such a central paradox. And then also when he became famous and he became so famous and was taken up by these beautiful aristocratic women, he was very comfortable in that company. You know, he loved, they loved him and he loved them. And so he liked, he did like women. It is a, it's just, it's such a contradiction. He loved having women around. He didn't like male company particularly. He didn't really have close male friends, not many. So he, he had one, didn't he? There's one absolutely central male friendship. That... Yeah, Horace, Horace Mole. I'm, I'm sort of, he was my honorary woman, <laughs> Horace Mole, because he was so, you, nobody could write a biography of, Thomas Hardy and not write about Horace because he was so important to Hardy and he was a depressive and alcoholic and he killed himself a few days after Hardy had seen him. Um, He cut his own throat with a razor and he was hugely, hugely influential. He he really nurtured Hardy as a young boy and he was just a fascinating and completely brilliant journalist, writer, thinker. And he was the one... Um, who said to Hardy, write in your own way, do, do it your way, don't try to be like anybody else. He, he was just this incredible person. Um, so he was sort of my honorary woman, but he didn't really have many male friends. He didn't like being touched. Uh, so one of his young school friends said he was a bit odd, like if a, if a male friend touched him, he couldn't bear it. He wouldn't. He didn't want to be touched by anybody. But he, so he was comfortable with women. He was comfortable, in, but he just treated them shabbily. Um, and particularly women that he was romantically attracted to, um, he because he you know he fell in love with love and then he would dismiss 
the women that he fell in love with. So that 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 contradiction is something that I was trying to unpick really throughout. Yeah, I mean, I like that his romantic career begins when I think he's barely more than a toddler, um, <laughs> when he pushes a girl into a stove. Um, <laughs> And that obviously something stayed with him. I think it's like when you're young and, and I remember this myself being in school and a boy picking on me and hitting me. And then years later saying, I really liked you. And I was like, God, boys are really weird. Like he, this boy was pushing me and kicking me. And like, it's because he fancied me. And I was like, wow, that's weird. Um, and then reading about Hardy when he was, he pushed her into a fire. It's like, he can't really control, he can't really deal with those romantic feelings, but the guilt. So that's the refrain, Sam, that you just keep finding is this shame and guilt. It's like he fell in love with this little girl by pushing her into the fire and he fell in love with another girl who died young. So, and he kind of enjoys the guilt and shame. It sort of fires him up a bit as well. So that pattern is there from such a young age of that slightly abusive, I don't want to overuse that word because he was a kind and loving person and women adored him, but just that that sense of behaving badly is there from a very, very young age. Well, that's, I mean, one of the things that sort of seems to go through it as well, I mean, I, I made a sort of partial list as I was going through the book and, you, you know, your contents actually provides a very full list because you structured the book around, you know, specific women most of the time. Dozens and dozens and dozens of women who go through his life, particularly ones to whom he's romantically attached. And yet he, he's not a great sleeper around. He's not a kind of gigolo or a Casanova. There's this sort of thing that he falls in love at the absolute drop of a hat. <laughs> and, you know, often with three or four women at a time, and he maybe hands out, a, hands out an engagement ring here or an engagement ring there. <laughs> and then it, then it sort of goes off the more doesn't get anywhere and then really enjoys that period when he can kind of go into mourning for the relationship and write a write a sad poem about it absolutely and that's that did inspire him and you're you're absolutely right and one of the reasons I named each chapter for a woman was that there were so many nameless women there were so many women who just hadn't been given a name or a voice and it struck me when I was rereading all the novels that every woman no matter how lowly particularly servant girls in Hardy they're always given a name and lots of novels Victorian novels don't name their servants. It just it really struck me as an, a tiny little important detail that even the lowliest servant girl is of interest to him. And he was very he was very attracted to beauty. He loved beautiful women, but he himself was not that attractive. He was very he was short. He had this sort of large head that people remarked about. The head sort of seemed too big brain. The, the head was sort of too big for the body, and he was conscious of being a small man and not being very sexy but he was really attracted to as I say beautiful intelligent well-dressed women he loved clothes he loved the feel of clothes he loved the sound of the silk rustling past him so he was very sensuous as a person but I think a little bit a little bit scared of sex you know and when he had all these crushes later on non-consummated crushes and he got close a couple of times because the marriage was so Emma was going, the first wife was going so badly. But almost I feel there's a little bit of fear about eroticism and sex. It's safer to write about it. That was that was my reading. But which he did in, you know, at the time, extraordinary detail, didn't you? I mean, I, I remember, you know, my early teens just reading Tess of the Durbills and that strawberry, you know, you'd go, holy shit, you know. <laughs> even then I knew there was something going on there. Um, 
Oh, it's, I know you think you filthy old. You know, he says he forced the, into her moist red lips, and you know it's really graphic. Um, and in in earlier versions of that scene, um, and and indeed the the, the seduction scene, um, he Alec actually drugs her. He gives her a drug. He's like he date rapes her, and then he takes that out and he puts it back in. And he's mess. You know, he's quite fixated on this idea of illicit and forbidden. And is it rape? Is it seduction? And so the great strawberry scene prefigures that. And it's interesting the strawberry f- scene because it, it very firmly says. Tess took it in. She took in this into her mouth. It's really interesting. Like, it's not forced, or is it? But she takes it in. So it's really graphic. And, you know, he he likes being very graphic. And then as he grew older, he hated the hypocrisy of Victorian society where they wouldn't talk about sex. So he was on a mission. But even then, you know, his editors, his his publishers are saying, oh, you you can't put that in. You'll have to tone that down. Virginia Woolf's father being the prime example. Leslie Stevens saying, oh, I'd love you to write more about that sex, but it's a Victorian audience and it's a magazine audience and women buy magazines. Can you not do that? (laughs) So so you've always got that impulse of him wanting to push it a little bit more. He wants to talk about sex a little bit more, but he's constrained by those more more mores. So I think there's that so I, I think there's something very psychologically fascinating about his view of sex. I think it's it's also really it was fascinating to me, which I hadn't known about at all, that given that that's the inciting incident of the tragedy of Tess, which feels in your book like the kind of pinnacle of of you know Hardy's work mm-hmm. as, you know, and or his relationship to to women. You know, Tess is the most important woman in his life in a way, that he does keep rewriting and recrafting and changing the moral emphasis mm-hmm. of that. I mean, you say the, the, the play script of Tess becomes mm-hmm. a kind of almost commentary on the, on the novel or a revision of the novel. I really felt that, Sam, and I, I was so fascinated by fa- that, that play because it's not that well known, but it, he had such, you know, it, you really get to see what he intended, like what are the important bits in the play in the novel that he puts in the place of like the strawberry scene or the the scene where Tessa's mother says, oh, come on, you kind of knew you were going to be seduced, love. That's why I sent you. You just get almost like a simple reading of what he wants you to take, but at the same time, he's always changing it. So he would switch it up and say in some versions, she's less innocent and in other versions, she's completely innocent and she doesn't even understand. And she says to her mom, I didn't read novels. I didn't know that men seduced me. And then other times there's a hint that, oh, she took all these presents once they had slept together. And so she's complicit. So it's almost as though he, he is changing his mind. He doesn't quite know what the relationship is. And because so many women he knew, rural women were seduced stroke, raped stroke, whatever um and had you know he called them bastard children um he's very aware of how this works or how it doesn't work he's he's wide-eyed about it they all know when they send Tess off what's going to happen they know she's beautiful they know Alex's going to seduce her you know and Tess sort of says well I didn't know but then there's hints did she know so him he I think he wants to create that moral ambiguity he wants it's so slippery like when does rape when is seduction rape or when is it not and he doesn't want the answers he wants us all to talk about it and so when when Tess comes out and all these aristocratic women are talking about Tess around dinner they're saying some of his friends are saying oh she's all right oh hussy she damn well knew she knew when she went off to Alec what would happen and then other women saying no she's a complete innocent so he loved that controversy that was he literally he stirred that up and it was meat and drink to him yeah 
to return briefly to, to real life, there's some fascinating stuff about Hardy's early love life that you get in. I mean, we said, you know, he falls in love and drop the hat, but completely occluded, except for these extraordinarily kind of cryptic notes in diaries and anthologies and hymn books and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you found, or at least elaborated more fully than I've seen before, some real relationships that, particularly Eliza Nichols, that when Hardy was a young man, he had this engagement, possibly actively sexual relationship, that that had been completely kind of occluded from history, largely by his... his tell, tell us how we found out about Eliza Nichols. I mean, it is fascinating. The, the last sort of big, important biography was the Claire Tomlin biography of Thomas Hardy. I think that was about 20 years ago. And, it, it, and Claire Tomlin, I love her. She's one of my favourite biographers. She's completely brilliant. But she she doesn't believe, she didn't believe the Eliza story. She said, oh, it's, it's yet another one of these women who claimed that they'd had a relationship with a really famous author. So she's Eliza was constantly dismissed. But I was quite fascinated by that story, partly because Richard L. Purdy, the great Hardy bibliophile and, and scholar, did believe it. And it, it just seemed to be yet another example of somebody saying, I had this relationship, it was an important relationship, I was engaged, and I've got this photograph, and but I bear all the letters and I bear all the books because he treated me so badly. And people saying, yeah, well, you, you didn't really know it. And with Eliza's story, again, she's dismissed. She's an old bat. She's an old woman. Don't believe her. And then it, what occurred, well, two things were a problem for that story. One was she did have this photograph of, of early Hardy. So people were like, oh, where did she get that photograph? It was the a photograph of a very young Thomas Hardy and it was signed. So that was absolutely, you know, good hardened evidence. And not so long ago, a, a book was found, Keeble's book of Christian prayer was found that had belonged to Eliza. And that was the link we all needed. We didn't really, apart from the photograph, we were like, eh, and the poetry and, um, we were like, well, that's really... And he talked about these five women that before he met his first wife, these five significant women. And people were like, yeah, we kind of know four. We got Maybe we got three, maybe we got four. And it was only with the discovery of this book, the Keeble book, that the link was made. And the book was given to Eliza by her mistress. She was a lady's maid. And so once this... It, this was the proof we all needed... And her initials were there and and Mary was in on it, Mary Hardy, his sister. So then she was finally believed. Um, but she and there's wonderful correspondence in the Banneke in, in, Library between Eliza Nichols' nie, uh, niece and Richard Purdy. When it, and she says, oh, it's so fascinating. She says, oh, Hardy, he came to the home. He gave my brother a copy of Tom Brown's School Days. And we know he nurtured young children. He loved buying books for children. And people just didn't believe her story. And now everyone believes her story. So, so, so although Hardy scholars have known about this, you know, for some while, the general Hardy public probably did not believe it so but it, it, it you know it, it's a fascinating story but not least because he he went off with her younger sister and this is where hardy again he just doesn't know women it's like okay it's not okay dude <laughs> like <laughs> it's like okay you fall in love with one sister and you give her a ring and you you say you're gonna marry her 
and you go to see the and he drawn sketches of the church find he drew, drawn sketches of the local church so all these clues were there and we know he wrote i was in finden i was like why the hell is he in finden what's going on there and it's all eliza nichols but then he suddenly thinks oh gosh the sister's a bit sexier hey that's okay i'll let's maybe go with the sister and it's just like how could how could any man believe that that's okay? And then, well, there is a sense of Hedrick is better. I mean, even when he meets <laughs> uh, and you know is elaborately in love with the woman he goes on to become his first wife, Emma. At the time, he's also deeply in love with his cousin Trifina, and mm-hmm. he's deeply in love with somebody else called Cassie Pole. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, what's a sort of sense that he's in love with the idea of these women rather than the specific women themselves? Is there? there anything in that do you think oh 100 percent. and i think a little bit i feel like a little bit like ted hughes that women represented sort of geographical locations so he would fall in love with a woman because of where she lived or what she represented so well tess is a field woman isn't she in the book there's a whole thing about 100 percent. i knew emma emma's cornwall and cassie pool is dorset and uh, you know these women were sort of you know, or Clavel Tower is is because uh, he did this picture of two lovers, and that was his relationship with um Eliza Nichols. And so he always seemed to have one or two or three in the fire. Like he just wanted to keep as many irons in the fire, almost as though he didn't trust the relationship or trust himself, or he needed to feel in love. And hurting people again, like Ted Hughes, and trying to hurt nobody, he hurts everybody. And I think that's sort of true of Hardy too, that he he knew that the muse, he needed the muse of being in love. But with, these were real women. And, and with Eliza Nichols, it's heartbreaking. She just waited for him. She was like Miss Havisham. She just waited for his first wife to die. And then she sort of turns up on his doorstep and he said, oh, sorry, I'm about to marry. Well, she's 70 or something, isn't she? Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's 70 yeah. and she's waited. And he says, well, I'm about to marry my secretary who's 39 years my junior and so he could be really he could be really vicious and mean to these women but it's absolutely true that you say that he always seemed to be in love with sort of two or three at a time or he would fall in love at first sight with a random woman on a boat this beautiful woman and he'd say oh what I probably would have been happier if I married her or and it was always these women he could have been happier with but he didn't, and and that that fed the the creative muse, you know. So it's it's it's, it's very much as Irish cast of mind, isn't it? That, that the road not taken is always the better one, you know. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? It really is. Do you think of him as a sort of user in that specific literary sense in which you know it's always bad news to be available to a writer? I mean, I, I there was a sort of parallel that struck me when. I think it's the, the Wessex poems, where not long after he's married, his finally married his second wife, Florence, he publishes all these poems. And actually, sorry, no, we're not, it's, it's the Wessex poems are before that, aren't they? They're the ones he publishes towards the end of his first marriage, which are all about how much he loved all these girls in his youth. Yes. Which causes great agony to Emma, who gets like one little ditty, and all of the rest are clearly about other women. Correct. Reminded me slightly of the Robert Lowell's The Dolphin. Do you remember the row over that? When he published, he left his wife and young child and then published a series of anguished but brilliant poems in which mm. he quoted from her letters to him mm. about I, the separation. And Elizabeth Bishop saying, you know, art isn't worth that much, Cal. Yeah, and it, it, Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda, you know, it's it, it's sort of been done over history, hasn't it? Women say, you took my words. I actually said that and now it's appeared in your 
book or your novel or your or your poem. And I think you're absolutely right. That's such a pivotal moment because, and he does the same thing to Florence. So he tortures Emma, if you like, with the poems about these incredibly intense and relationships. And I think that sonnet sequence, the sheet to him, which are about Eliza Nichols, are they are incredible poems. He wrote them when he's in his early 20s. It was a sonnet sequence that would have been like Sydney's sonnet sequence, but he destroyed a lot. And there's four or five and they're so powerful and they're all written from the point of view of the woman, but of the man breaking up with the woman and breaking her heart. And then Emma's tortured by this and by these women. And then, then after she dies, poems 12 to 13 come up, which extols her virtues and that tortures Florence. And she's saying, and she's saying, oh my goodness, I had no idea he was so in love with her. And now I can never compete with her because she's a ghost. Well, what can I do? You know? There's a sort of comical reprise of this as well, isn't there? When uh, he writes a poem <laughs> to his dead cat in which he says, you know, you were my only friend in the world. And Florence kind of reads it and goes, hang a second, you told me I was your only friend in the world. That's exactly it. And 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 she and there's another poem that it actually is about Horace. And but again, he, he turns it into a, a cat poem and he said, oh, I kind of felt that was appropriate. And you just think, no, this is a poem about suicide. Then your best your best friend killing himself. And and, and yeah, but this is exactly what Florence saying. But I thought I was your best friend and this is a poem about the cat. And so there's definitely a sense in which he is. And, you know, you use the word use. And I think it's a strong word. And I think women felt used by him. I think people did feel used. And that they were mined, that their lives were being mined for his books. And I think that quote from his sister Kate, which she says, I don't care how bad, how much Tom talks about it or how badly we were used as schoolmistresses, because she knows when it comes to Jude the Obscure, he's going to draw on their painful lives as rural school teachers. And there's a kind of complex, maybe some of the women like it, but they don't really. Like, oh, great, I'm I'm amused and, and I know that I inspired this part of the novel. And Emma certainly loved all that. She loved a pair of blue eyes because it was all, it was her. Um, but then, but she didn't love Jude so much. And by then she knew that she was no longer the muse and she wasn't allowed to read or didn't choose to read Jude. And she'd always been Hardy's first reader. And so that was the end of the marriage. And the marriage was dead anyway, but it was sort of the end of the marriage. But I think some of the women did feel used. I think Florence Henniker felt used because Sue owes a lot to her so there's always that mixture of people sort of feeling proud to be amused but also feeling a little bit soiled by it just a little bit tainted in some ways and yet this this extraordinary ability to inhabit women's minds that's kind of fascinating you saying the early reviews of the novels in fact his very first novel somebody says this must have been written by a woman and for, for then mm. somebody else thinks far from the madding crowd is by george Eliot. And there's mm-hmm. a kind of sense this, you know, this this must be by chicks, you know. <laughs> he understands yeah, women better definitely. than men. Definitely. And then women writing to him and going, How do you do this? Like, how are you getting inside my heart and my mind and my soul? Like as a woman, how are you doing this? You know, these almost this sort of bewildered response from readers saying, I don't know how you do it, but you but you do it. And and I think that's the moving thing for me was just how real fictional women were to him and one one of his friends saying when he talked about Tess you'd literally think she was in the next door room she was flesh and blood to him she, he would say you know well when Tess does this and he'd talk about it like she was real but the way that he could so imaginatively enter inside 
the inner lives of of women in a way that George Eliot was doing, Jane Austen had done, I suppose Samuel Richardson for sure did, but it was still unusual. He took it to a different degree, I think, of, and particularly for working class women, because working class women weren't really written about, with the exception of Pamela, but they weren't written about in the way that Hardy wrote about working class women and how they had feelings every bit as real, rich, inner lives as did aristocratic women. And then, and that was definitely reflected in these fan letters of people saying, I don't even know how you're doing it. It's got to be a woman. A woman's got to be, in those early years, this has to be a woman writing about women so powerfully. And then the sense of surprise, oh my God, this is a man. Do you think he pities Tess or does he fancy her? Or is it sort of a bit of both? I'm, I'm kind of really struck by the connection that you make very early on in the book, with the original or one of the originals for Tess, is this woman who was hanged for, for killing her husband under extreme provocation. His response to the, the image of her on the scaffold, you know, the old clothing fetish, she's basically got some wet clothes, and it's it's a highly sort of eroticised response to this woman going to her death. It is, and he was only 16 when he saw this, and he was right close to the scaffold, so he had a prime view and as I describe in the book, it was a rainy day. It was in August. It was that sort of fine rain. And her dress clung to her curves. She was, she was very beautiful. And she had this executioner's mask on. And that was white. And you could trace the features. So it was probably one of the first times he'd seen a sort of semi-naked woman because he talked about her fine figure and the way she circled after she'd been killed. And it really messed him up. And his second wife said... It really did account for his very strange relationship to women and sex because it, it shouldn't have gone. It was He regretted it. He was guilty about it. He was turned on by it. And it's it, to me, it was so compelling that we never see Tess hanged. He doesn't go there. He won't go there again. He can't revisit it. So I think it's really interesting. It takes her, her execution it takes place off stage. You just see the flag. And you see it from Angel and Liza Lou's perspective. Um, he can't go there. It's too painful. But he definitely, and I think it, you're a tender age when you're 16. And it definitely messed up his messed up his ideas of what eroticism and sex and death was, for sure. And I think going back to your question about Tess, it was a bit of each. You know, he 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 was in love with Tess, with her beauty. But he felt such pity he would he would cry he would cry when he read and saw her saw productions of of Tesla. he would cry because he would say she's so innocent and everyone's abusing her he really really believed that she was real and and he was very sensitive to her you know her coil of dark hair her be- her mouth he says it looks like she's been she she's made of milk and honey like as because she's a milkmaid and it's it's reflected in her cheeks she's just this idea that the most beautiful pure woman and he knew he was being provocative when he subtitled it pure because people say well she wasn't pure she knew exactly what she was getting into working class girls know when you go to visit your handsome cousin what's going to happen so he was again being provocative so i think in answer to your question it it was a little, like that kind of again that erotic pull but also that pity for her, that real pity that she is always exploited and she's always exploited by usually men. To, to get to the, the sort of towards the end of his life and in late middle age, he has these series of attachments, which they're not completely sexless because he's obviously making a sort of slightly half-hearted attempts to move these relationships. You know, he starts sort of mentoring young women to sort of zither playing 
Florence Henniker and the poet Rosamund Watson and these various kind of other figures who he kind of takes an avuncular interest in, but they have to sort of gently say that's as far as it's going. And then Florence becomes his second wife. She sort of actually is insinuated into the menage at Max Gate. Did they start sleeping together before Emma died? Do you have a sense of that? My gut instinct is yes. I mean, I I, I absolutely do think they were. And I, do, I think those very evocative po- um, photographs of them on the beach when he was seeing Florence, when Emma was still alive, and you can just see that chemistry between them. And one of them's in the book, one of these pictures, his photographs taken when he was going to stay with Edmund Clodd. And I feel from what Edmund Clodd said, they were definitely sleeping together. Um, and I don't think he'd been sleeping with Emma for a very, very long time, but she'd moved into the attic and she'd been there for 15 years and the relationship was absolutely dead in the waters. And I def- I got the sense that it probably was, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I got the sense it was sexual. And then later on, these new letters that we found from Florence that have only just come to light, make it very clear that they had a great sex life. And Hardy himself said, that he was having great sex in his eighties, um, and I, I and I, I do think through the sort of <laughs> through the Me Too generation as well, where we are rightly so sensitive to sort of old men being lascivious towards much younger women, and that was certainly the case with people like Florence Hennigan. He would just want to push it further, like can we can we kiss and can we do this? And they'd be pushing back, saying we love you and you're amazing and you're a great friend, but like don't go there. Yeah, put it um, away. And, and, and I like, like your detail. I was <laughs> to interrupt you, but it just made me laugh so much. Where he'd just written a very romantic poem about parting from Florence during the early stages of their courtship, and and you know being on a train platform. And then he kind of confesses in his diary that he can't stop being distracted looking down from the top of a bus at young women in their fluffy blouses. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's that kind of. Yeah, and, and and the Florence thing I think is really interesting because he definitely wanted that affair to become physical when they went off to Winchester together, um, and it didn't. And and I felt sorry for the women because they're always having to say, "Oh, can you just like not make me feel uncomfortable, please?" You know, and and he's pushing, 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 and yet and still like eyeing up all these other gorgeous women, and then also being, I mean obviously not a Harvey Weinstein, but there's kind of like him saying, well, if you won't be my muse, darling, I'll find someone who will be my muse. So you get that. I felt uncomfortable with some of those letters when he's that emotional blackmail comes through of, well, maybe you're not the muse I thought you were because yeah, you, and and with Florence Henneke, he would say, oh, but you're such a free spirit, but you don't really believe in free love. Oh, that's weird. Oh, so you just talk about it and you write novels, but you don't actually want to have free love. Sort of pushing women into, what what would have been extramarital affairs? So, I mean, do you think he would be, as it were, right for me to meet? Well, do you know, I, do you know, Sam? I was worried writing this book because I thought, oh gosh, post me too, because I I I pitched and sold this book before me too. <laughs> I, I did it as a two book deal, so I didn't know that was going to happen. And then after me too, I was like, oh. God, Hardy's going to get cancelled, and I've cancelled him. And I didn't want him to be cancelled because I love his writing and I love what he did for the idea of the modern woman. And we live in such a, an age where you're cancelled for the slightest thing, in my view, ridiculously, absurdly so. And I didn't. Wa- I don't want him to be cancelled for being lascivious. And these women were strong women, and they give women credit they're not wallflowers these these were powerful aristocratic women on the whole who would tell him no sorry that's not going to happen 
And so I didn't want to sort of paint it in those sort of me too terms. It felt like that would be a disservice and it would just be jumping on a, a bandwagon that I kind of feel uncomfortable with, if that makes sense to you. So I was always sort of sensitive to that. Should be said that Emma pushed back. I mean, I love that the diaries she wrote were titled What I Think of My Husband. And she kind of gives him both barrels, doesn't she? How many of those survive? Because didn't Hardy destroy quite a lot? Well, he destroyed all of that journal and most of her letters, sadly. But the letters that do survive, and there aren't many, make no bones about how she felt about him and how she felt totally neglected and she was his muse and he'd taken some of her ideas and he claimed that she was mad and a lunatic and deluded and she was being gaslit, not to use those words because a gaslit wasn't then around, but it was the same thing. Um, And Emma, really strong woman and absolutely made no bones about how badly she felt she'd been treated. And so when he found that awful diary, the diabolical diaries, he was devastated that, all this vitriol was there of what she really thought of him um, and how awful he was. Um, But then, you know, friends said she would beat him up with a rolled up newspaper. They'd go around for dinner and she'd stop beating him. You know, (laughs) she did give as good as she got. It was a a pretty unhappy relationship um, by then, but she, Emma definitely gave as good as she got. And then Florence was, was had a terrible time too, because she said, now I understand Emma's point of view because I've retreated into the attic and he's being horrible to me and he's in love with, Gertrude Bugler, who's only 17, 18. So they all felt badly used by him. No, there's a nice coda that, because Gertrude Bugler, I should say for listeners, was that the young actress who he was convinced had to play Tess because she was the living incarnation of his vision of Tess, i.e., the, the woman he loved more than any, any real woman on earth. And, and then he dis- discovered her mother was the maid, the milkmaid he'd spotted as inspiration. He didn't know, but he'd seen this very beautiful woman milking a cow before he wrote Tess. And he said, oh, gosh, she's the most beautiful person I've ever seen. And then met Gertrude coincidentally and then discovered that she was the daughter of the milkmaid who had inspired Tess. So it felt for him this all the stars had aligned and this was the great romance that he'd always missed. And she, what he'd finally found, he called her that she is the incarnation of Tess. He used those words. So he was, she was the, in a sense, the great love because she married the fictional heroine with the real heroine. And that's why Florence was so devastated, so distraught. So, so appalled by this massive infatuation. But Florence and Gertrude made nice after his death, which is a, Really sweet coda to it, isn't it? It is. And she's apologised for her part in ruining Gertrude's career. Um, so she, yeah, they, and yeah, she made her peace. She made her peace. And, you know, Florence was threatened too because, and she knew how it felt to be the mistress. And and um, so they did make their peace, the, the women. Well, out of time, unfortunately, but plenty more of this in this wonderful book. Paula Byrne, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 